Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The November midterm elections seem to bring a lot of people out to the polls. Here in Illinois, with a bitterly contested governor's race and other statewide and congressional contests, the voting was a presidential election level. But we think of that as good turnout in the 50 percent range. But that doesn't impress or please my guest this week at all. He thinks many more of us should be voting, and he thinks he has a way to encourage that. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is a man who spent a lot of time behind the scenes throughout the political and business worlds, but he's also had some high-profile and crucial roles Bradley Tusk is a political strategist, a venture capitalist, a philanthropist, and an author. He has directed communications, policies, and strategy for people like former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and New York Senator Charles Schumer. He was a deputy governor here under uh, Illinois Governor Rob Blagojevich, and yes, we will ask him about what that was like. Uh, He now runs Tusk Ventures, which works with startups that need help getting through government regulatory red tape, and he and his wife head Tusk Montgomery Philanthropies. So what does all this have to do with voting? Well, you'll see. Brad Tusk, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Let's talk about that voting first. This seems to be an outgrowth of your philanthropic and business ventures. Uh, You're involved in developing ways uh, for people to vote via their mobile phones. Now, I think when people first hear that, they will think, boy, that sounds risky. But what could make something like that a secure alternative for some people? So, I mean... Here's how I got to the conclusion that this was an important thing to work on and to fund, which is I spent 20 years in government and politics, as you know, before becoming a venture capitalist, worked in city government, state government, federal government, uh, you know, executive branch, legislative branch campaigns. I feel like I've got a pretty good take on it all. And there's not a single politician that I worked with, with the exception of Mike Bloomberg, that whose every decision wasn't motivated solely by electoral concerns. Obviously, Rod was sort of the chief among them. But um, generally speaking, everything that I learned in politics is that if you want different policies, if you want different legislative outcomes, you have to change the political incentive. So let's say that you're a Republican congressman from Florida and average turnout in your district is 12 percent in the primary. And because of gerrymandering, the primary effectively is the general election. Um, if the NRA is half of that 12 percent, if you know 6 percent of those voters are from the NRA, you may know that an assault weapon ban is the right public policy. You may be sickened by the ways that people are being massacred, but you can't stomach the thought of losing your job, right? Uh, you know, for, for pol- most politicians, holding office is like the validation and affirmation they need to just like live. I mean, the same way that if someone said to you or me, like, hey, guys, you can't have oxygen anymore. That's what like not having attention would be like for most politicians. And so they're never going to make a choice based on what's right. They're only going to make a choice based on what's politically advantageous. The good news is most of them don't believe in all that much. They're pretty adaptable. So let's take this fictional primary again in Florida. Now let's make turn out 60% instead of 12%. 
the NRA's vote share goes from being half of the electorate to 10 percent of the electorate. The politics change completely. And then it would make no political sense not to be for assault weapons ban. So if we want to change the outputs, we've got to change the inputs. And the second thing that I learned in all the work that we did in legalizing Uber and ride sharing around the U.S. is people who normally um, never vote in a primary are not politically engaged. But we gave them the opportunity to weigh in politically through their phone. They did so. The reason that Uber became legal in every single market in the U.S. is we were able to mobilize our customers to weigh in with their city council members, state reps, state senators, mayors, and say, I want to be able to do this thing. And enough of them did it, ultimately a couple million people in total, that we were able to beat taxi all over the country. Um, so what that said to me is people will get involved if it's convenient enough, but they're clearly not going to go to a polling place. And the third piece is blockchain. Um, and people often get blockchain and Bitcoin confused and and that happens a lot. But Bitcoin is is totally controversial and kind of an ideological question. Blockchain is just plumbing. Blockchain is a way of transmitting data from point A to point B in a more secure way than we can do now. So the convergence of these three things led me to see an opportunity to create mobile voting where people can vote in elections on their phones. And so out of my foundation, we are bringing together the tech side of it and the political side of it, um, providing the funding to do it. So the first state to try it was West Virginia. They did it in the last election, uh, both in the primary and the general election. It was for members of the, of the military who were overseas. The idea being people who are literally putting their lives on the line to protect our right to vote, um, it ought to be easier for them to cast their own votes. And um, and it worked. We ran four separate security audits from it. Everything came back clean. People from 30 different countries uh, ended up participating in the election. Um, and uh, it was really a much easier way to do it. So we're now talking to a bunch of other states and cities and counties around the country. And my hope is over the next couple of years, I can prove that this thing works and um, you know dispel concerns about it and then ultimately give everyone a chance to vote in a much easier way. Now, this, this test was somewhat limited, though. Uh, yeah, very limited. It, it, and in fact, the very first test, it was only 13 people, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was also in West Virginia. Uh, the uh, test this time, how many people? 144, yeah. So, we're, I mean, look, it had never been done before. So I, I didn't want to be the guy who paid for it, created an election that didn't work either. Uh, so we did it in a, you know, small, limited way where we could make sure it worked. Um and the votes actually were real votes that were cast and counted in the elections. Um, so, yeah, the, the the next one we're looking at is uh, municipal elections um, in the West, and hopefully it'll be a combination of deployed military and maybe some of the disabled community as well. And and that's a that's a key. I mean, of who does it is key because it has to be people who can't really do it easily or effectively any other way, right? Well, so, to start, right. I mean, right now, look. One of the reasons that we chose deployed military is it's really hard to stand up and say these we shouldn't make it easier for these people to vote. Because what happens right now is the ballot gets mailed in from Kandahar. It shows up in Cook County a month after the election and it gets thrown in the garbage. Right. So people can't really object to making it easier for that to happen. But ultimately, my goal is not just deployed military or people who live far away from polling places, but all of us, because what we found is if we don't make it easier to vote, it doesn't happen. So this year probably the most political of all years that I can remember. Do you know what turnout was nationally in the primaries this year? Well, I, I know here it was about 50, 54%. That in general, in the primaries nationally, it was 19.7%. Mm-hmm. The four out of five people who are registered to vote still didn't bother to do so. And the reason why is it's just too inconvenient and too difficult, and that's not going to change unless we make it easier. So if we want to get different policy outcomes, if we want to see assault weapons ban, action on climate change, health care, all these different things that are hard to get done, whether it's at a 
local level or a federal level, it's only going to happen if a lot more people vote. Now, this involves using an app on a phone. Yes. Uh, and I think that's where people's doubts or, con- or, or confidence might waver. Um, things like facial recognition technology, which I know is one of the uh, apps that, uh, that you're working with, uh, the Votes app, uh, is, that's one of the bases of verifying yep. who is you're using you. the app. Um, facial recognition technology still has some weaknesses. I mean, I've seen reports of a mother's phone being unlocked by her daughter. Right. I, I do know that when I'm using my uh, photo software on my computer, my computer mistakes me and my son uh, quite regularly. Sure. So so what, what they did in this case, and this was the first one ever, was they took a facial recognition scan. They then matched it against your military ID to make sure that the two scans matched each other. You then had to use a biometric uh, identification as well, so your fingerprint, and all of those things combined gave them the confidence that you were really you. But that's exactly why we're starting small and doing little, little pilot programs around the country where we can see what works, what doesn't work, keep improving on it. And, you know, I don't see a world where this is mainstream for five to ten years at the soonest, um, but my hope is that we can put the work in to get it off the ground. Um what about intentional hacking? I mean, you know, yeah. we we already know that it is not. First off, it's not just the uh, the Russians who are uh, trying to hack our system. There are just regular people sure. uh, who have fun doing this kind of stuff. But what about that or bad broadband yeah, signals? Yeah, so a few things. So one is um, we saw people try to do that in the West Virginia election um, simply so they could then stand up and say, "See, I told you it doesn't work," um, and because we were able to spot it, we were able to prevent it. So it didn't actually happen. Um, but he, here's what I know. The, the current system that we have right now is totally vulnerable, right, to hacking, to interference. Um, so there's no election system that's perfect. I mean, think about we're sitting in Chicago right now, which was, you know, the her- home of voter early vote often, or, you know, the home of, of taking people out of the morgue effectively and having them cast votes. Um, there's all kinds of ways to mess with the ballot one way or another, whether it's paper or blockchain or electronic voting machines or anything else. Um, so I think the question here is, how do we have the safest possible voting we can while also getting as much participation as we can? So, yeah, we could have a world where we make it so hard to vote that we eliminate all potential risk of hacking. But that's like saying, let's fill in every swimming pool with concrete because we don't want anyone to drown. Right. It may achieve the goal, but it defeats the purpose. Um, our democracy is not working right now. Very few people, I think, would say that it is at any level of government. And that's not going to change unless turnout increases exponentially. Now, I will. Uh say that, you know, I, 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 and I think most, most political figures, uh, you know, are always going to say they are for ballot access for more people to come out and vote. Um, but I've always thought that, you know, I've looked at countries where voting was dangerous and frankly, even in this country, I mean, in my lifetime, I've, you know, I've, I've seen people hurt or, or killed. Yeah. fighting for the right to vote. And those are the times when people are intent on voting. Right. I mean, it's something that is at stake. And, you know, sometimes I will admit, I every once in a while wonder if people didn't feel voting was a challenge that, had to, that you had to basically risk something to go and vote, that people just kind of lose interest and think it's not important. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now it's the worst of all worlds, right? It is neither seen as important enough that people will say, I'm going to make sure that on this Tuesday, somehow between 
my work and getting the kids to school and everything else I have to do, I'm also going to go vote. But at the same time, it's also not easy enough for people just to choose to do it, even if they're not that excited about it. So it's the worst of all worlds. It just doesn't happen. And it's not a priority. Um, there are elections, and I think we saw that a little bit in the, in the midterms this year in the general election, where people are so fired up about whatever's happening in the city, the country, um, that they will turn out in greater numbers. Um, but ultimately, you know, even now, even even the terrific numbers for the for the midterms in the general election this year, well, it's only half the people, right? And the problem is, in reality, when most elections have 10, 15 percent turnout, the politician, whether they're on the left or the right, says, I got to keep this 10, 15 percent happy. And those tend to be either the most left wing or the most right wing voters, because those are the most motivated voters. And that's why we can't get anything done. Um, let's let's talk about motivation. What started you down this path that has brought, yeah. you, brought you here? I mean, now, you you have a book uh, just out. Yep. Uh, it's called The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. We'll get into that a little bit more. But you talk about being drawn to yeah. politics. What was it about? I you know, I, I think for me, um, it was this notion of having the, and I think this is probably true for everyone who works in and around politics, whether you're covering politics or working in government, or working on campaigns, which is the ability to have some impact on the world that's a little greater than just what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, right? Ultimately, when you do this show every week and you do all of your reporting, it helps change behavior and it helps change outcomes because either people, A, want you to say nice things about them, or B, people get educated and learn and they take some sort of action, right? And that's why the fourth estate is such a critical part of democracy and why what's happening in Washington right now to me is, is very scary. Um, but ultimately, it felt to me like I wanted to do something that, that felt more important, more meaningful. And, and you know, I think maybe we're getting towards the, the story that the book opens up with or one of the stories, which is, um, you know, I grew up in, in New York and Brooklyn, Long Island, uh, first generation American. We didn't really have any money or know anybody. Um, but I always liked politics. And my dad had one friend who was a lawyer for the Carpenters Union in New York City. And in 1992, when I was 18 years old, the Democratic National Convention that year was at Madison Square Garden. It was the year that Bill Clinton was nominated for president. And this guy, Brian O'Dwyer, God bless him, called me up and said, hey, you like politics, right? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, would you like to go to the convention? I said, that would be incredible. He said, okay, I can get you a one-day Carpenters pass. Just pretend to fix something if someone asks. So I'm very excited. And if you look in the newspaper... And you're going to laugh at me because you've probably been to a million conventions. You know this isn't the case. But it says noon to midnight. Now, in reality, you shouldn't show up before like 7, 30, 8 o'clock. But I didn't know that, right? I'm this totally naive 18-year-old kid. So I put on a suit, and I go to Madison Square Garden, and I'm walking around. And it's pretty like there's literally nobody there. Like, two guys running for state rep in Montana are speaking, and that's it. And finally, it dawns on me like, hey, this doesn't really get going till later. But I looked in the audience. Like, I'm Ed Rendell, who at the time was the mayor of Philadelphia, um, was sitting there by himself. I had just finished my freshman year of college at Penn, which is in Philadelphia. I kind of sat there and said, maybe I can say hi to him. You know, he's the mayor of Philly. I go to school in Philly. I'll take a shot, see what happens. And now that I know Rendell, he was probably just talking to the empty chair next to him anyway, right? He was so <laughs> didn't, he was thrilled to have someone come over and tell him how great he was. Um, we talked for 10, 15 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, he says, are you busy when you get back to school? And I said, no, not, not particularly. He said, do you want an internship? I said, that'd be great. He said, okay, send me a note. We'll set it up. So I go home. I write a letter. And every day I'm opening the mailbox. And, and what I know now but didn't know then is that correspondence is like the black hole of government, right? Everything comes in. Nothing comes back out. And so I get back to school, and I've never heard back. And I just, for some reason, thought, well, like, nah, I'll go see him. And so I went to City Hall. This is a decade before 9-11, so security is not what it is today. Um, and I got to not his, his actual office but kind of the outer office to his office. Um, 
And I said, is the mayor here? And it's, in retrospect, a crazy question to ask because the only people who do that are either people who are actually crazy or people who are protesting. And I didn't seem crazy, and I wasn't protesting anything. I was just this, like, nice 18-year-old kid who was totally clueless, didn't realize you can't ask to just see the mayor. And there were these nice old ladies from South Philly who were kind of manning the desk, and they said he's not available right now. But do you want to leave a note? Said, yeah, sure. So I wrote a note. I explained, you know, what it was. And I'm taking the subway back to the dorm, and it hits me like, you idiot, you can't do that. This, you know, cross this off your list. It's never going to happen. And I get into the dorm room, and the phone rings. I hold for the mayor. He got on the phone. I said, when are you coming to work? And I said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And uh, worked for him all through college, and uh, you have basically worked in politics ever since. <laughs> you are listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is political strategist and former Illinois Deputy Governor Bradley Tust, who's written a book called The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. Um, you have worked for people who've wanted attention above all else. You've worked for others who seem to want to do more good than look good. Um, is it kind of a love-hate relationship? And and yes. uh, and really, what kept you wanting to still do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to a certain extent, look, one, it's fun and exciting to work in government politics at a really high level, right? I was 29 years old when I became deputy governor of Illinois, and I got to run the state especially because Rod was the kind of governor that didn't actually govern. So, you know, he would go three or four months at a clip without coming to the office. So I found myself deciding we're going to sign this bill or we're going to veto this bill. We're going to grant this pardon or we're going to deny this pardon. We're going to spend a billion dollars on this or a billion dollars on that. It's pretty heady stuff for anybody, let alone a 29-year-old from New York who probably had no business being deputy governor in the first place. But in all these different jobs, you know, there's almost this action gene that I think people in politics or around politics just all have. We all kind of just need things to be happening all the time. Like I find that I am too much better. I'm fine when things are going badly. I am bad when nothing's happening. That's when I start to really fall apart. Um, I just need ac action at all times, and politics really provides that. And so, you know, I'd always find different ways to be involved in it. And, and now, by doing it through technology and venture capital, it's just really another way of applying the same skill set and saying, okay, I want Uber or Bird or Fandle or Lemonade or whatever it is to be legal and available in Illinois and Chicago what do I have to do politically to make that happen? Well, and I do want to talk to you about uh, about the startups, but let's talk a little bit about the politics. Uh, first off, you like action. There was a whole lot of action uh, around Rod Blagojevich. Uh, really was. It at was at one point. You ended up testifying at his corruption I trial. Testified in both trials. Look, that, that, say whatever you want, Rod. He was not boring. You got to give him that. Yeah, but I mean, that means you got to see a lot of stuff going wrong. Yeah, well, I saw one very specific thing go wrong, and that's what I testified to. Um, so this was when Rahm was a congressman from the 5th District up here. Um, and Rahm and Rod had had a conversation. Rod promised Rahm $2 million for athletic facility in Rahm's district, um, and then the money never happened. And I wasn't really even aware of it, but then Rahm calls me one day and yelling and screaming and cursing in the way that any phone call with Rahm tends to go. <laughs> um, and I said, okay, look, I don't know about this, but I'll look into it. And I'm on the phone with Rod that night, and I said, hey, by the way, Rom's really upset about this thing. I figured Rod would either say, like, oh, I forgot about that, or just, yeah, get it done. And instead he said, not till I get my fundraiser. I said, what do you mean? He said, Rom's brother. So Rom's brother is Ari Emanuel, who's a Hollywood mogul. Um, Rom's brother, Ari, promised me a fundraiser, and they're not getting that grant till I get my fundraiser. I'm like, dude, you, you can't do that, right? This is a, a government grant for a school. You're talking about political fundraiser. Um, these two things don't compute. And so got off the phone, calls from people who I thought might be liable to actually try to deliver that message for him and told him not to do it. 
uh, worked with our general counsel to make sure that the grant was given and the fundraiser didn't happen. But when Rod was charged with 24 different counts uh, in December of 2008, one of them was attempted extortion of Congressman Manuel, and I testified about that in both trials. Now, I have to ask you a little bit about current politics uh, here in Illinois and Chicago, because we're going to have new leaders at both the uh, city and state level. Voters have spoken on a uh, Republican uh, Bruce Rauner and Democrat J.B. Pritzker. But besides passing a truly balanced budget, at least at the state level, what is the... What do you think should be the, the main strategy for righting the ship or restoring confidence? Yeah, I mean, I think in I'm some, asking you to give free advice. Yeah, actually. absolutely. And, I, I, I and look, wrong, I, I worked but. with JB. Uh, he was the human rights commissioner when I was here. So I, I know JB and, and, and have a lot of optimism for his administration coming in. Um, in some ways, he really might be the perfect guy for the moment because if you look at almost all of the state's problems, which are different than the city's problems, um, they all stem from finance and the economy one way or another. It could be an unfunded pension liability. It could be underfunded schools. It could be infrastructure needs that are not met. Um, but all the stems around kind of prudent and smart financial management and being able to maneuver that, that agenda through Springfield and, quite frankly, be able to work with Mike Madigan to get it done. Um, and, I, you know, I know JB also from the venture capital world and from the tech world. He really understands, in a way, how jobs are created in this economy, you know, what the jobs tomorrow are going to be. What do you do about cryptocurrency? What do you do about drones? What do you do about artificial intelligence? Um, More than any other governor in the country, he gets this stuff. And so I think all of it is around how do you create a business climate that is equitable and fair, that creates jobs, especially good jobs that are going forward in the future, um, and deals with the state's problems. Not easy by any means, but I think that tackling that head on, people have had enough of governors kicking the can down the road year after year after year. Um, and so I think that, you know, if JB and, and Madigan and Cullerton could sit down and say, this is going to be a lot of hard medicine. Our poor numbers are all going to go down. I'm not sure Madigan's good that much more than they already are, but they're all going to go down. Um, but we're going to finally do what it takes for the people. Um, it won't be popular immediately, but my advice would be do it the first minute you have, because A, you have your greatest amount of political leverage and capital in your first year as governor. And B, you have the most amount of time till the next election should you choose to run for re-election. So I would just say put in the toughest, most painful castor oil budget possible uh, for this coming year. Do what needs to be done. You know you're going to take a lot of hits for it, but it's the right thing to do. Now I'm going to ask you about the city. And in this this case, I'm going to ask you to give uh, free advice not to the officials, but to the voters, because yeah. Chicago has so many things going right and so many things going wrong uh, that what's what should voters think when they look at a field? Right now it's 21 people, yeah. and admittedly maybe 10 to 12 are actually any, you know, are, yeah. are, are credible candidates. And in, in some cases you have several very credible yeah, candidates. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some really big names yeah, in that race. That, uh, what is the important so he, guide he, so for I, the look, voters? To, I worked in city government for Mike Bloomberg. And what I learned, what made Mike so successful is a few things. One, all the talent he brought in, it was like the opposite of, say, the Chicago Patriots machine. It was just, I'm going to find the best talent I can get from anywhere in the country. I don't care what political party they're in. I don't care who sent them. All I care about is getting the best talent I can. I'm then going to make them hire everyone else in the same way. So then all of a sudden we have thousands of people in management in New York City government who were just working at a much higher level than the city was used to. And I'm going to give them the freedom to innovate and try new ideas and fail. But if you look at the big things that happened under Mike in New York, 
they all came out of this crew of people and having the freedom to really think. So one is hiring the best people without regard for am I taking care of this alderman or this union or, or this person who endorsed me or whatever it is. Don't worry about any of that, right? So that's number one. Um, number two, you know, city government is very different from everything else in that it is a day-to-day, there's the single biggest sort of cause and effect that you'll see in government at all. It's actually why I like working city government better than anything else because, like, my first job in, in the city was at the Parks Department when I was 22 or 21. And um, what I realized pretty quickly is if we did our job well, the parks were cleaner and safer, and all 8.6 million New Yorkers had a higher quality of life. If we did our job badly, it was the opposite. They all had a worse quality of life. And you really do need a mayor who gets that and is just intensely focused on all the actual operations of the city day to day. We went in New York from Mike Bloomberg, who really was just a hands-on manager, to kind of Bill de Blasio, who's very hands-off. Um, and you see the difference. You see it in homelessness. You see it in the, in the MTA. You see it in public housing. You just see lots of declines because you need a really capable, competent manager. So I would say whoever the voters think is the most hands-on, independent, competent person, that's what they should elect. Ideology doesn't really matter. Politics shouldn't really matter. City government, as, as the original Mayor Daley, you know, very famously said, you know, is about taking out the garbage. And finally, and we've got like oh, maybe three minutes left. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about startups. Uh, I mean, a lot of people, as you pointed out, praise Uber and, and the voters, certainly the, 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 the customers certainly wanted that choice. But obviously not the taxi cab industry, right. which is withering now. Um, and some suggest that, you know, these kinds of new business models are in some ways sparking a race to the bottom on wages for things like drivers. The drivers in, for Uber don't make as much money as taxi cab drivers do. The taxi cab drivers are not making any any money anymore either. Is it cannibalizing yeah. the industry? I mean, a few things. So one is, you know, there, and we've been working on this a lot all over the country, the labor laws that we have in this country were created around 100 years ago. Um, and they made sense for the Great Depression and the world that we were living in, but clearly no one creating those had ever envisioned the sharing economy. And we have these incredibly outdated laws that say either you're a full-time employee or you're an independent contractor, and whether you're an Uber driver or a handy cleaner or you know, Instagram, I mean, Instacart delivery person or anything else, everyone in the sharing economy is not quite either one. And as a result, the law doesn't really know how to treat them. So one thing that we need is real clarity in federal and state law that says, Here's what the sharing economy is, and they can get benefits and come up with ways to both encourage that people to be able to be paid more, get better benefits, but still work with the underlying business models because right now no one's really doing that. Um, so that's that's number one. Number two, ultimately, you know, there's a cycle of everything where taxi, you know, just in almost every city in America for decades and decades did nothing to improve the product, nothing to innovate, a long institutional history of racism um, pretty much everywhere. Um, and so the voters and the consumers were really ready for something new when it came along, right? Most startups to do well are taking an existing industry that has gotten slow and arrogant and sort of not doing a good job serving its customers and come up with an easier, better way to do it. Um, and I think we want to encourage that, right? It doesn't mean there shouldn't be rules around how scooters should happen or insurance should be sold or hotel rooms should be rented or everything else. Um, but ultimately, you know, if these apps weren't providing more choice and better opportunities to consumers, they'd go out of business, right? So the ones that are succeeding, clearly there's market demand for them. So the driver politicians and them to say, oh, you know, my donors don't like this, so I'm going to shut this down. It's 
my my voters clearly do want this. How do I govern this and regulate this in a responsible way? Uh, do you find that, um, and we only have 30 seconds left, uh, the, that the politicians who had been fighting are coming around to your point of view, or are you having to yes, roll over y- them? Well, y- yes and no. Um, they were, but now you have this big tech lash where people are angry at Amazon and Google and Facebook. And even though those companies are the furthest thing possible from a startup, it's starting to have a backlash on tech across the board. Um, so I got to the, we got to the right place a year or two ago, and now we're backsliding. Well, that is Bradley Tusk. Uh, I would like to th- thank, thanks, Brad. Thanks for coming yeah, thanks back for having in. Me. His book is called The Fixer. It is published by Penguin Portfolio. Uh, and uh, But Brad has so many things to talk about. I know he will be back. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That is WBBMnewsradio.com. You can also find our co- podcast, podcast podcasts on radio.com you're about to invent something new <laughs> yeah combining listening and fish <laughs> yeah. yeah i will be back next week with another edition of that issue and i hope you'll be listening until then i'm craig delamore news radio 780 and 105.9 fm t-mobile has invested billions to light up america's largest 5g network from big cities to small towns including right here in yours And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.